Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. That's right. We are talking about real history here on this podcast. Welcome back to it. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you. I hope you enjoyed our last podcast on the Declaration of Independence. We finished that up. We are now on episode five of this podcast. And I tell you, we are still right at the beginning of this thing. As Winston Churchill would say, probably we are at the beginning of the beginning. We are not even at the end of the beginning. We are just getting started here on the Letters from Our Fathers podcast. And before we get into it, I wanted to give a brief update as to uh, where we're at with the podcast now. I was originally hoping to make this a a three-episode-a-week podcast where we do three episodes a week. Unfortunately, I don't think that's actually going to happen. The research Between the research time and everything else, it takes a little bit longer for me to crank out these podcasts. It's probably going to be a a two-episode-a-week podcast for the time being. But that's okay. We're still going to give you some good content on the podcast. And the reason for the uh, downgrade from three episodes a week to two episodes a week is largely just because I'm a one-man band and I'm the only one doing this. Production-wise, there's I, there's literally not a single other human being helping me with this. So it takes a little time. You know, it takes a little time to do the research, put it all together, put out the podcast, so on and so forth. I'm sure you understand. You know, when you're when you're starting a podcast off and it's a, it's a one-man show, it's really, you have to wear all the hats. You know, I have to wear the production hat, the marketing hat, And it's a process. So I appreciate you bearing with me as we go through that, and I continue to improve the podcast as we go. That said, I wanted to make sure and mention again, uh, if you want to support this podcast work that I do, you can go over to patreon.com and find my site over there. It's at patreon.com slash podcasts with Roman, or you can just go over there and do a search for podcasts with Roman, and you should be able to find it fairly easily. And just know supporting me on that podcast uh, over there. I do have a separate podcast, basically, on the uh, Patreon side of things as some additional content that I provide to subscribers over there as a thank you for actually going in and doing a a subscription uh, support to uh, my podcast work, and I hope to provide some uh, reasonably good content over there as well. For those who subscribe, and I thank you in advance uh, for those of you who will be doing that. Now, what will we be talking about today? After having done the Declaration of Independence review that we did on the prior two episodes of the podcast, I was forming up the letters that I was going to be going over from America's Founding Fathers, some correspondence of theirs, and I I came to the realization that the Declaration of Independence is not quite sufficient enough background to really fully comprehend the grievances, the problems, the concerns of the Founding Fathers in their letters. There's probably one more thing we really have to cover, and I had debated going over it or not, and I decided I'm going to go ahead and do that, and that is the Intolerable Acts. That is to say, the acts from the British Parliament on the British, or excuse me, on the colonies in in America, namely against the colony of Massachusetts. However, there were some implications to the other colonies with at least one, maybe two of these acts. And this particular set of acts, known as the Intolerable Acts, really did light a fire underneath 
America's founding fathers, you begin to see a change in their letters around the time that these acts were brought into play. And we will see that in the correspondence. And so you better understand what they're talking about in those letters. We're going to cover very directly what it is that they're talking about, because it's not as clear as it could have been in the letters, but uh, that's fine. We'll uh, we'll make up for that, and we'll cover the Intolerable Acts and go over that here today. And I think you're going to enjoy this content. This is going to be a great discussion on the background of the American Revolution and our Founding Fathers, and of course, their correspondence. I really do think that you're going to get a lot out of this particular podcast, so stay with me on this podcast as we go through this, and let's get started on that today. All right, folks, we have arrived back in time to 1774. And I know all of you are very excited to travel back with me to 1774. That is to say, you history enthusiasts, or maybe you folks out there who are just interested in studying the Founding Fathers. Maybe you're not a big history enthusiast, that's fine, but maybe you're just interested in the Founding, the Revolution, the Founding Fathers, and the issues around that particular time period. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Okay, so we are going to talk about the intolerable acts of 1774. I've got five of them here. Some say there's only four, but I say that there's five, and I'm going to tell you why as we go through this. We will get to that in short order, and we're also going to have John Adams. He'll be cutting in here in a, in a, in a few minutes. Uh, he'll, he's going to be cutting into the podcast, and we're going to be going live to John Adams from October of 1780, and he's going to be giving us some of his words of wisdom to educate us on also what was going on back in 1774, and honestly, the, the time period just before that, and what exactly led up to the Founding Fathers having so many grievances against the government of Great Britain, namely King George and his parliament. So let's get into this first intolerable act that we're going to talk about, and that is the Boston Port Act of 1774. And as always, I'm going to read directly from the document, and I'm going to be giving you some context around it as we go. So here we go. Quote, An act to discontinue in such manner and for such time as are therein mentioned the landing and discarriage, landing of sh or shipping of goods, wares and merchandise at the town and within the harbor of Boston in the province of Massachusetts Bay in North America, end quote. Okay, so that gives us a very clear picture of what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the entire colonies. These people aren't blocking up the port of Charleston, South Carolina. They're blocking up the port of Boston. Hmm, I wonder why. So we're going to get into that. Namely, what you're going to see through these intolerable acts is that they are specifically targeted mainly against the people of Massachusetts and especially Boston. And you might be thinking in the back of your mind, what was it about Boston that really hacked off the King of England? So keep that in the back of your mind. Be thinking about what it was that transpired in Boston round about 1773, 1774, that really got the king all worked up into a froth. And we're going to continue. Quote, Whereas dangerous commotions and insurrections have been fomented and raised in the town of Boston and the province of Massachusetts Bay and New England by divers ill-affected persons to the subversion of his majesty's government and to utter destruction of the public peace 
and good order of said town, in which commotions and insurrections certain valuable cargoes of teas, being the property of the East India Company, and on board certain vessels lying within the bay and harbor of Boston were seized and destroyed, end quote. So, if you guessed earlier the Boston Tea Party was what got the king all hacked off, congratulations, you guessed accurately. That, amongst other things, it wasn't just the Boston Tea Party, but this statement right here is speaking specifically about the Boston Tea Party, as we would call it, where certain of the Founding Fathers and their associates, and by Founding Fathers, understand what I mean by Founding Fathers. I'm not talking about exactly Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, John Jay, Benjamin Rush, Dr. Warren, etc. There were, there were, I mean, there were thousands of these Founding Fathers, really, at the end of the day. There were thousands of them, and some of them, their names are honestly probably lost to history, and many of them we know, uh, the signers of the Declaration of Independence, uh, obviously then extended on to the signers of the Constitution and the people immediately around George Washington and, and all the rest of it. Ben Benedict Arnold would be considered a founding father in my book if he hadn't been a traitor, as we talked about in prior podcasts. There are a great many of these guys. So when I say founding fathers boarded the company, don't think that Benjamin Franklin boarded, boarded the East India Company ship and started hurling tea off the side of the ship necessarily. When I say founding fathers, it, this includes a lot of people. So just keep that in mind. So what was it about this Boston Tea Party? And what was it that led up to the Boston Tea Party? Exactly. This is where we're going to allow John Adams to tell us exactly what happened. So we're going to bring John onto the, uh, onto the podcast, and he's going to tell us exactly what transpired leading up to this. And I have here a letter from John Adams to a Mr. Culkin, written from Amsterdam when John Adams was stationed there during the war. The 4th of October, 1780 is when this letter was written, and we're going to segue down this letter a little bit, and we are going to pick it up in a particular paragraph, and I'm going to read this to you, and by the end of this, you'll, you'll have a much better understanding of exactly what was going on here. Quote, in 1767, they passed another act of parliament laying duties upon glass, paper, and paint, painter's colors, and tea. This revived the discontents in America, but government sent over a board of commissioners to oversee the execution of this act of parliament and all, other, all others imposing duties with a multitude of new officers for the same purpose. And, in 1768, for the first time, it sent four thousand regular troops to Boston to protect the revenue officers in the collection of the duties. Loath to the commer loath to commence hostilities, the people had recourse to non-importation agreements and a variety of other measures which in 1770 induced Parliament to repeal all of the duties upon glass, paper, and painter's colors, but left the duty upon tea unrepealed. This produced an association not to drink tea. In 1770, the animosity between the inhabitants of Boston and the king's troops grew so high that a party of troops fired upon a crowd of people in the streets, killing five or six and wounding some others. This raised such a spirit among the inhabitants that in a body they demanded the instant removal of the troops which was done, the governor ordering them down to Castle Island some miles from the town. In 1773, the British government determined to carry into execution the duty upon tea empowered the East India Company to export it to America. They sent some cargoes to Boston, some to New York, some to Philadelphia, and some to Charleston. The inhabitants of New York and Philadelphia sent the ships back to London, and they sailed up the Thames to proclaim to all the nation that New York and Pennsylvania would not be enslaved. 
the inhabitants of Charleston unloaded it and stored it in cellars where it could not be used and where it finally perished. The inhabitants of Boston tried every measure to send the ships back, like New York and Philadelphia, but not being permitted to pass the castle. The tea was all thrown into the sea. End quote. I gotta tell you, probably the most articulate example, most articulate discussion of what led up to the Boston Tea Party and this great problem between the colony of Massachusetts and the British Parliament and, of course, the King of the King of Britain that I've ever read. It, it's absolutely fantastically written. It's short and to the point, fairly concise, and John Adams gave it to us more than 200 years ago. It's right there. And that's why the Letters of the Founding Fathers and why this podcast is so titled Letters from Our Fathers, that's why this is so valuable. You really can't beat what the Founding Fathers wrote. You can have historians kind of boil it down for you and summarize it and give you a synopsis and then, of course, inject their usual opinions, in some cases accurate and in some cases grossly inaccurate. But reading from these letters and telling you exactly what they thought is a much better way to go about this, and that's why I do it. So having having heard that, I'm sure I'm sure you can now understand why I'm reading you direct, reading to you directly from the letters instead of just summarizing it. Any anybody can really just summarize you know something on a podcast, but half the time what you're going to get is garbage, and the other half of the time you're frankly speaking not going to know whether you're in garbage or not most of the time because they don't quote their they don't quote their sources and they don't give you any actual material to go from. Here we are. So John Adams is telling us about exactly what led up to this Boston Tea Party. So the people of Boston tried to send the ship back, like New York and Philadelphia did. They couldn't because of this bizarre situation they had going on with the troops at Castle Island. So the the Boston Tea Party was born apparently according to John Adams and I know him to be a fairly honest man by all accounts. They were frustrated and at their wits end with this whole tax on the tea that they decided to just go ahead and liquidate the tea, literally. Throw it into the ocean. Now obviously that's private property. It's the property of the East India Company. I don't know that it was necessarily the greatest idea in the world. So if somebody asks me, you know, Roman, would you have in 1773 gone over to Boston Harbor and hurled the tea into the into the ocean. Not necessarily, but I wasn't there. And I'm not going to judge the Founding Fathers, you know, unduly for their rash behavior. Because, again, I wasn't there suffering under, you know, 4,000 British troops a few miles away from my front door. That intimidation factor of actually dispatching regular soldiers into a peaceful town has an effect on people. And it has an effect of working them up. And this is the kind of thing that transpires afterwards. So the people of Boston are not necessarily entirely, entirely to blame for the Boston Tea Party. Uh, certainly the king sending his troops into the town was like adding fuel to a fire. And probably not the most advisable thing to do, which is why they were pulled back to Castle Island. As John Adams said, and I'll, I'll quote again from the, uh, the second paragraph that I read from here, quote, This raised such a spirit among the inhabitants that in a body they demanded the instant removal of the troops, which was done, the governor ordering them down to Castle Island some miles from the town, end quote. So he says they were, they were you know, it raised such a spirit. That's basically, you know, 1700s speak for they were, they were worked up into a, a froth. And they, they really came unglued. And rightfully so. Uh, imagine a situation where, you know, something transpires in your town and, and 4,000 regular troops are dispatched <laughs> to uh, effectively occupy the town. Could be a problem. 
It depends on what's going on. There, there are some circumstances where National Guard is deployed inside the United States, and there's good reason for it. And there's, there's other times where there's absolutely not good reason for it at all. And I'm not going to get into that. I could, but I'm not going to because, again, this is not a partisan political podcast. I'm just giving you an example. I start going off the rails and talking about modern issues, and uh, it's, it could get very partisan very quickly, and I will not do that. So I'm just, ta- I'm just talking about history and what the Founding Fathers did here. You make of it what you will. So now that we know what led up to the Boston Tea Party and John Adams has given us a fantastic description of that scenario— Let us continue into this intolerable act, uh, again, about the Boston Port Act of 1774, whereby the king is blocking up the port of Boston. Quote, And whereas in the present condition of said town and harbor, the commerce of his majesty's subjects cannot be safely carried on there, nor the customs payable to his majesty duly collected, and it is therefore expedient that the officers of his majesty's customs should be forthwith removed from said town. Be it enacted that from and after June 1st, 1774, it shall not be lawful for any other person, for any person or persons whatsoever to laid, put, of or form any quay, wharf, or other place within the said town of Boston, or in or upon any part of the bay commonly called the Harbor of Boston." End quote. And it picks up again later in the paragraph, quote, "...into any ship, vessel, lighter, boat, or bottom, any goods, wares, or merchandise whatsoever to be transported or carried into any other country, province, or place whatsoever, or into any other part of the said province of the Massachusetts Bay in New England, or take up, or to take up, within said town, or in or upon any of the places aforesaid, out of any boat." any goods to be brought from any other country, province, or place, or any other part of the said province of Massachusetts Bay and New England upon pain of the forfeiture of the said goods and of the said boat, end quote. Now, thank you for bearing with me through that. That was a lot of 1700s speak, and I can only imagine whether and how much of that you can actually grasp just hearing it through the podcast, because some of this language is very, it's not old English, but it, it's it's formally written from the king's uh, people in in Britain, so it, it's it's hard for in the in the modern vernacular to really understand exactly what they're talking about with really without really painstakingly going over this. So I'm going to summarize it for you. Basically, what they're saying here is that you're not moving anything in or out of the port of Boston at this point. Now, there's going to be some exceptions that we're going to talk about here, but for the most part, the goods that are moving in and out of the port of Boston are are, are to cease. So you can't even ship it out to another colony within the uh, the 13 colonies. Uh, of what's going to become the United States later on. So they are really effectively stifling commerce. So understand what's happening here. The British Empire issued a mandate that the East India Company have some rights to deliver and trade in tea in the colonies. This privileged position of the East India Company by Great Britain, amongst other things, including the tax on tea, which was still levied, by the way, as John Adams you know, so eloquently pointed out to us, really frustrated the people quite a bit. Uh, they They defied the mandate, and again, in New York and Philadelphia by sending the ships back. And in Boston, they... They were fairly reckless in just tossing the, the, the property over into the sea again. Hard to say whether or not that was actually a smart idea or not, but we'll just uh, we'll, we'll, we'll just regard it for what it is. They, they threw the tea into the harbor. That's it. End of story. Okay. And because of that, the king's response is to shut down commerce. We're going to shut you down. That's what the king is saying. 
saying, I will shut you down. You can only imagine the effect this had on the people of Boston. You got to understand these were these were much more. I mean, even I mean by our standards today, these were these were much harder times in the 1700s. There wasn't a lot of excess to go around. I mean, doing commerce in a lot of cases. I've read some letters about this from the founding fathers regarding their crops, uh, like George Washington, for example. This man, I mean, just speaking of people who wrote about their crops, George Washington probably wrote about his crops more than he wrote about anything else. At least up to the up to the war period, he did. And there's a lot of talk about commerce and uh, engaging in business with Great Britain and trade and all the rest of it. You know, these people had a hard time of it in, in many cases. Not necessarily Washington all the time, but it was difficult to make money back then. And this trade was very, it was much more difficult than it is today. It wasn't like you put something on a UPS truck uh, and then, you, you know, it, you fly across the Atlantic Ocean and your product is there in, in a week or so. It took a great deal of time for people to actually get their products onto boats and ships and send it over to Britain or wherever and get their money back. Now you're talking about shutting down all commerce out of the Port of Boston. So this is, I mean, this kind of seemingly, it seems like an overreaction, of course, on the part of the Founding Fathers, and a great many of them wrote about this as being something of an overreaction, because it has such a detrimental effect on these people's lives, and their livelihoods, and their businesses. So let's get, that's why it's called the Intolerable Acts. So continue. Quote, that nothing in this act contained shall extend to any military or other stores of his majesty's use, or to the ships, whereon the same shall be laden, which shall be commissioned by, and in the immediate pay of, his majesty, nor any fuel or victual brought coastwise from any part of the continent of America for the necessary use and sustenance of the inhabitants of the town of Boston, end quote. So what he's talking about here is the exceptions to the rule. Obviously, His Majesty's ships are accepted from the rule for military purposes and other purposes, uh, but also what they call, quote, fuel or victual, end quote. A victual, victual, by the way, and I had to look this one up some time ago when I first read this, food, provisions. Uh, so they're, they're certainly allowing for the importation of fuel and food, which is good on the one hand, but... Hardly, you know, telling somebody basically they can get their groceries, but they can't engage in any other commerce is something of a problem. And again, keep in mind, the Founding Fathers called this the Intolerable Act. Intolerable. They took this very seriously. This wasn't um, a nothing issue. And it wasn't just the Founding Fathers in and around the, the, the place of Boston who, wrote, who uh, talked about this. Uh, I believe there was a reference to this, and I think we're, this is one of the letters we're actually going to talk about later. John Jay also talked about it. He was not from Massachusetts, by the way. He, he talked about this. He wrote about this. And others, you know, mention it in, without saying it exactly. That Basically, it's what they're talking about. So let's, uh, let's continue on here and finish up the Port Act. Quote, Until it shall sufficiently appear to His Majesty that full satisfaction hath been made by or on behalf of the inhabitants of, of the said town of Boston to the United Company of Merchants of England trading to the East Indies for the damage sustained by the said company, for the destruction of their goods, sent to the said town of Boston, and until it shall be certified to His Majesty in council by the governor of the said province that reasonable satisfaction hath been made to the officers of His Majesty's revenue and others who suffered by the riots and insurrections above mentioned in 1773 and 1774, end quote. So, what the heck are they talking about here? They're talking about restitution being made for the damages to the East India Company and the property contained on those ships. And again, history will, you know, judges this 
however history judges this, and you know, when say when they when people say that history judges things, history is not exactly what I would describe as a unanimous voice. It isn't like history is a monolithic creature. Although I'm sure some historians would love history to be a monolithic voice that just renders judgments on all things past, present, and probably future. I say I say future half jokingly, but uh, in, in in all honesty, historians I think sometimes like to reach beyond their. Uh, beyond what they should be grasping for. But not all historians, like I said, the, in, in podcast, I believe episode number one or two, there's a lot of really good ones out there. Fantastic historians. I'm talking about a relative few. But history is not one big monolithic voice, and there's going to be debate for the next 5,000 years as to whether or not the founding fathers that threw the tea into the harbor did the right thing or did the wrong thing. And everybody needs to make their own decision about that based on the circumstances and the criteria contained herein, uh, in, the, in the Intolerable Acts and in John Adams' writings. And what I'll say about it is, is that John Adams and the other Founding Fathers didn't necessarily, in all cases, condone the, the, the damage to the property, but they sure as heck didn't condone the reaction to it. They, John Adams, I believe, certainly one of the people who, based on you know his writings in that letter, and and for and further on further on down in that letter, you know, and obviously articulated in the Declaration of Independence, they thought that this was an overreach by the king. It was just too much. Again, it's an intolerable act. It's intolerable. And we're going a little bit long on this podcast, so I feel another two-parter coming on. I'd really hope to squeeze this into one part, but these things always go a little bit longer than I think they will, because uh, I don't like to make these podcasts very long. I like to keep them fairly short, uh, out of respect for your time more than anything else. Uh, otherwise, I could sit here and talk about this for the next five or six hours. But, you know, by about hour number two, I'd have zero people listening to this podcast, so <laughs> we're not going to do that. So we're going to probably finish up this next Intolerable Act and finish up the remainder on, the, uh, on a part two to this podcast. So the Massachusetts Government Act of 1774. These all came, by the way, in 1774 within within rapid succession, really, of one another. They, they came one right after the other. And starting off here at the beginning, quote, an act for the better regulation of the government of the province of the Massachusetts Bay in New England, end quote. There's a propaganda statement. So obviously the king thinks this is going to better, better regulate the government, but as we read in the Declaration of Independence, they talked about the king suppressing their houses of representation. That is to say their, their councils and their Congresses, for lack of a better way of putting it, the king suppressing these these institutions was very much disagreeable to the founding fathers, as we read in the Declaration of Independence. So the king may think this is a good idea, but clearly the founding fathers, by what we read in the Declaration of Independence, thought this was absolutely in, in, insane. If I may, if I may use that word, the founding fathers didn't. But from what they wrote and what we read in the Declaration of Independence, I don't I don't think that's too far of a reach. So let's continue, quote, And whereas the method of electing such counselors or assistants hath by repeated experience be found to be extremely ill-adopted to the plan of government established in the province of Massachusetts Bay, and hath for some time past been such as had the most manifest tendency to obstruct and in great measure defeat the execution of the laws. And it hath accordingly happened that an open resistance to the execution of the laws hath actually taken place in the town of Boston and in the neighborhood thereof. And whereas it is under these circumstances become absolutely necessary that the appointment of the said counselors or assistants should thereforth, or excuse me, should henceforth be put upon the like footing as, an, as is established in such other of His Majesty's colonies. In America, the governors 
whereof are appointed by his majesty's commission under the great seal of great britain be it therefore enacted that from and after august first seventeen seventy four so much of the charter which relates to the time and manner of electing the assistants or counselors for the said province be revoked and that the offices of all counselors and assistants elected and appointed in the pursuance thereof shall from hence from thenceforth cease and that from and after the said August 1st, 1774, the Council or Court of Assistance of the said province, for the time being, shall be composed of such of the inhabitants or proprietors of land within the same as be as shall be thereunto nominated and appointed by His Majesty, end quote. Again, a lot of 1700s formal English speak for the, ma- the, the king is effectively revoking the ability of the local inhabitants to elect their counselors, what we would think of as like city council members and so on and so forth, county commissioners, is roughly the similarity to what we have today. The king is revoking their ability to elect these folks, and they are going to be henceforth, quote, appointed by his majesty. So imagine if a central government of the United States came into a local government and said, we're going to remove you. Think about that for a second. Let's say that you elected a local counselor, commissioner, Whatever would have you. Could be state legislator. And the, the the big central government came in and said, we are going to remove you. We're going to get you out of, the, out of my way, and I'm going to appoint uh, such a person as I shall deem appropriate for the position, according to my will and dictate, etc., etc., so on and so forth, you know, signed the dictator. That's effectively what the King of England is doing here. You can imagine the reaction on the part of the people, this being a massive problem. For those of you who think that this country is a democracy, you would say, well, the the king is uh, revoking our democracy, so to speak. Of course, we don't live in a democracy, but if we did, that's what you would say. Uh, Effectively, you know, those of us who believe that this is a um, representative republic, and it is, you know, the the founding fathers used the term republic to refer to this country. If you don't like that, you you really need to get used to it. And, um, start using the appropriate language because the founding fathers would, would surely frown upon you if you if you were using inappropriate language. Uh, at least that's my opinion, but I, I think I'm right about that. So he's interfering with the representative republic of the colonies. Imagine that happening in the United States today. It would upset you. You worked hard to elect these local, these local county commissioners and these city council members and your mayor and so on and so forth. You want them representing you. You spoke with your vote. Or maybe you didn't vote for that person, maybe the other guy or gal. Whoever it was won, maybe the opposition won, but still, your neighbors elected these people. And whether you whether your candidate won or somebody else's candidate won, still, they were elected. This is the person who should be serving and should, should not be removed by some dictate, by some tyrant across the ocean or wherever, just because he disagrees with them or thinks that they're not running the place effectively. This was intolerable. Obviously, it's one of the intolerable acts. There's a reason why this is lumped in there. So what's the what's the takeaway here? You know, I, a few times when I was reading the Declaration of Independence, I told you to pay attention. And when I say pay attention, I don't mean pay attention to me, because I'm just the messenger here. I, there's two things I mean by that. I mean pay attention to the Founding Fathers and what they wrote, but also pay attention to make sure this doesn't ever happen again. The, the Founding Fathers didn't fight a war, declare their independence, build a government, and and constantly battle. It wasn't like when they created this country, it was a done deal and everything was sweet and wonderful after that. I mean, this thing was a battle daily, sometimes weekly, monthly, year in and year out for a long time between various rebellions and insurrections. 
and other things. It was a difficult job they had putting this thing together. And we should pay attention to make sure it doesn't ever happen again, so that we don't ever have to suffer under intolerable acts and then eventually 4,000 troops being quartered nearby. We're going to talk about that here in a few minutes. It's one of the intolerable acts. We don't have to, or actually probably on the next podcast, but we don't, so we don't have to suffer under that, and we don't have to go through what the Founding Fathers went through. You, you stop this thing, you stop this kind of stuff before it really gets going, because once the machine of this thing really gets going, you end up exactly where the Founding Fathers were. History repeats itself. Always remember that. Don't ever forget that. The wise old man once upon a time says history repeats itself, and the wise old man was absolutely accurate about that. And the wise old man also said a, a different old wise old man basically said that those who are who those who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it. That's what this podcast is for. It's to teach history in some regards, educational. Pay attention. The founding fathers wrote all this stuff down for a reason. Like, why did John Adams take the time to write this letter to Mr. Calkin from Amsterdam? And why did John Jay, remember from prior episodes, we read a letter from John Jay who was gathering all of his correspondence and some of John Adams' correspondence together so that future people could recall or re- refer to it, is what he said. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but he said they could refer to it. There's a reason why all this stuff was written down and why it was kept and why we have it available today. Pay attention. Pay attention. Let's continue. Quote, and it is hereby further enacted that the said assistants or counselors so to be appointed as aforesaid shall hold their offices respectively for and during the pleasure of his majesty. End quote. Huh. So they, they work at the at the will of the King of England. I mean, these people will be constant these people will be eternally beholden to him. They will not be accountable to the local people. This is the central power, the King of England, reaching into a local government and controlling and manipulating it. Removing it, not physically, but removing its accountability away from the people and making it accountable only to him. Typically throughout history, those of us who've studied history in some regard will know that nothing good ever comes from this. This is a catastrophe in the making. Let's continue. Quote, that from and after July 1st, 1774, it shall and may be lawful for his majesty as governor for the time being of the said province, or in his absence for the lieutenant governor to nominate and appoint under seal of the province from time to time, and also to remove, without the consent of the council, all judges of the inferior courts of common pleas, commissioners of Oyer and Terminer, the attorney general, provost, marshals, justices, peace, and other officers to the council or courts of justice belonging, end quote. Again, further removing local control. Remove it. This is going to be the province of the king and his guys. He's going to put these people in there, and they are going to control everything to do with the local government, the local judiciary, everything. Why? Because you can't trust the local people to govern themselves, according to the king. Very dangerous stuff. Very, very dangerous stuff. Let's continue. Quote, Be enacted that from and after August 1st, 1774, no meeting shall be called by the selectmen or at the request of any number of freeholders of any township, district, or precinct without the leave of the governor, or in his absence the lieutenant governor, in writing, expressing the special business of the said meeting except the annual meeting in the months of March or May, for the choice of selectmen, constables, and other officers, or except for the choice of persons to fill up the offices aforesaid, on the death or removal of any of the persons first elected to such offices, and also except any meeting for the election of a representative or representatives in the general court, 
and that no other matter shall be treated of at such meetings, end quote. Wow. This is what we like to call micromanaging. The king is dictating the time and place and circumstance under which these meetings may be held. It's not, it's not enough to put his own people in charge over there in many offices and limit greatly the ability of the local people to elect their own local government. But he's also micromanaging this to a bizarre level. And micromanaging is micromanaging from a central government throughout history, and again, I'm speaking from history here, has always been the hallmarks of a tyrant and a dictator and a despot, a monarch, micromanaging. If you've ever read the Constitution of the United States, it's fairly short. It's very brief. I, I hazard to say that if a Constitution of the United States was being written today, God forbid, that it would probably be about 10,000 pages long at best, possibly 100,000 pages long. And I'm not making these numbers up. I'm not. This isn't hyperbole. This isn't me being dramatic. I'm just being honest. And it would contain so many provisions and so many various little nuances and micromanaging and, and all the rest of it that it would be almost impossible for anybody to understand or comprehend it, and that would probably be the point. The Constitution is written so that the common man can understand it. That's, that's one reason why it was so brief. But also... Because if it's brief and very careful, very clearly defines the boundaries of what the Founding Fathers called the general government, be very difficult for that government to micromanage. And the more you see micromanaging begin to happen from a central power, the bigger the problem. As far as the Founding Fathers were concerned, this isn't me saying this. This is the Founding Fathers saying this. Again, keep in mind, these are the intolerable acts. This is what really threw gasoline on the fire. I didn't name them the intolerable acts. The Founding Fathers named these acts the intolerable acts. So, again, I'm just the messenger. I know there's going to be some folks who listen to this podcast who think I'm getting partisan political here, but I'm not. I'm talking about history, and again, it's not what you want it to be. It is what it is. We have here a situation. Again, we were joined by John Adams, and he was quite clear about what the Founding Fathers felt about this. For crying out loud, Philadelphia and New York sent ships back the people of Charleston, South Carolina, they hid the tea in a cellar, for crying out loud. In a cellar, so that it would just go bad and they couldn't use it. These people were angry from one end of the colonies to the other. From the Port of Boston all the way down to Charleston, South Carolina, these people were angry. This was intolerable. The only thing in debate here, uh, and I'm not going to debate the point, is whether or not they had just cause to be angry or whether they didn't have just cause to be angry. And keep in mind, this this anger was really all over the manner and method of the import of that tea from the East India Company and the tax that was associated with it. That's it. That was enough to light a fire under the Founding Fathers, and a big fire at that. It was a slow burn at first, but once that fire got going, it was it was lit. So that um, that takes us up through a couple of the intolerable acts. We are going to cover the rest on the next podcast. Thank you for bearing with me on this podcast as we go over this. I think this is a great... I, I'm, I, I, again, I had originally debated whether or not to cover the intolerable acts at all because I thought the Declaration of Independence, ah, it'll be sufficient to provide some context about this. But, you know, in hindsight, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that I decided to go into this in some detail because it does provide, it expands on what was talked about in the Declaration of Independence and provides a much better context. Uh, for it. And, and the letters that I was going to cover from the Founding Fathers were also going to provide that context. But again, to understand those letters in greater detail, you really have to have this background. Otherwise, some of those letters, frankly, are just not going to make a lot of sense unless I 
elaborate on them every single time, but I can do that in just one one run through by talking about the Intolerable Acts and bringing John Adams in here to tell us some of the history leading up to the Intolerable Acts. And uh, thank you to John Adams for for giving us that content. Uh, again, I am very grateful to the Founding Fathers for the time they took to write this stuff down. And they had their reasons for doing it at the time. But I do know that many of them were thinking of posterity. That would be us when they wrote this down, as evidenced from that letter from John Jay that we read in a previous episode of this podcast. That's not me making that up. That's John Jay telling us that. So don't take it for granted. Take advantage of what John Jay, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Samuel Adams, etc. Great many of them. Too many names to mention. Take advantage of what they left us and take advantage of the writings that they provided to us for instruction. These are instructions. And it's, wis- it's the wisdom of the ages. So with all that being said... Let's move into the next section of this podcast and wrap things up. All right, here we are at the end of this podcast. I just want to wrap things up here real quick. So what what are we talking about here when we talk about the Intolerable Acts, the Boston Tea Party, the British Parliament, the King of England, etc.? What what was it exactly that the Founding Fathers were rebelling against? In Boston, anyway, it seemed like they were perfectly happy to govern themselves, and that appears to be the disconnect. The people of Boston wanted to live a particular kind of way. And maybe that was different from the way people in Charleston wanted to live, although honestly it sounds like, according to John Adams, it was somewhat similar. But in different places in the colonies, you get these different groups of people, each of them with their local assemblies and whatnot governing themselves. The problem came when the central authority, King George III, reached into the process and tried to dictate from afar, from a distance, and muck around with the local assemblies, the local governments, and the local control. The Founding Fathers took issue with this, of course, because their local assemblies were, were much more accountable to themselves. It's the same today as it was then. The local assemblies are always more accountable to the people than some distant, faraway thing. So the Founding Fathers rebelled at the notion of being forced to pay these taxes that were levied by a parliament that was so far away, or being made to trade in a particular kind of tea from a particular company that was set up or empowered by the King of England or the Parliament. And it seems that in many ways they saw, the people of Massachusetts anyway, saw Massachusetts as their country, their their province, their locality, and that's what they wanted to be. They wanted to be Massachusetts men and women. Hard to be a Massachusetts man when some dictator a few thousand miles away is trying to muck around in your business. Next thing you know, because you didn't go along with what he said, he sent 4,000 British regulars into your town to occupy the town. And when that didn't go well, he shut down the port of Boston. Now, obviously there was going to be some reaction to the destruction of the private property, as I mentioned earlier, and there should be some reaction to the destruction of private property. But as we're going to find out in the continued review of the Intolerable Acts, the Founding Fathers certainly took issue with the, the scale of the response, shall we say. They thought, well, it went a little bit too far. And, and you're going you're gonna to get full exposure to that in the next episode of this podcast. We're going to finish up the Intolerable Acts and talk a little bit more about those. So get ready for that. Now, with that said, again, I want to thank you for joining me. And uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, all of our folks in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Charleston. These colonies mentioned by John Adams that received shipments of the, this tea from the East Indian Company. And there were three different responses. New York and Philadelphia sent the tea back. Charleston hid the 
This is hilarious. They hid the tea in a cellar until it went bad and it couldn't be used anymore. And then, of course, the people of Boston, out of an act of frustration and inability to deal with the situation any other way, they threw it into the harbor and the port of Boston. So if you're from Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, I want to hear from you. Leave a review on this podcast or go over to the Patreon side of things and leave a comment over there. Of course, you got to be a subscriber over there. And if you don't want to be a subscriber over there, that's perfectly fine. I won't be mad at you. Uh, just leave a review on the podcast to the extent that you can leave a review on this podcast and tell me how you feel about this, being uh, somebody native from that particular area. Do you feel like they did the right thing? Do you think they should have done more? How do you feel about the uh, dictates from the East India Company and the British Parliament? Let me know. I want to have a discussion about this. And if it's many months from now, I mean, this podcast is still early, obviously. There's not a huge listenership to this podcast as of yet. But if it's many months from now and somebody cruises in and starts listening to the old episodes of this podcast, feel free to leave a review with a comment in it anyway. This conversation doesn't end just because we move on in this podcast to another episode or another topic. I still want to know. So leave a review. I'm very eager to hear back from you folks uh, about uh, anything to do with how you feel about this issue because it happened in your town. Very interesting discussions can be had there. So, and as I mentioned, with the Patreon side of things, you can go over to my Patreon and support my podcast endeavors there. It's patreon.com slash podcastswithroman. If you want to go straight to the URL, there it is. Or if you want to go over to Patreon and do a search for podcasts with Roman, you can do that. I certainly appreciate it in advance if you decide to support my podcast endeavors over there. There's an extra podcast over there you will gain access to. So your subscription money will not be wasted. I endeavor to try to make that as good a podcast as this one. It's a little bit of a different format. It's a little bit more of an open discussion, less scripted. I'm not going off of the letters over there. I'm just talking about general issues, issues of importance, issues that I find interesting, and, of course, comments, suggestions, and things such as that. So we can have an interaction. Again, I look forward to the interaction. So with that, I am going to go ahead and end this podcast. But again, thank you for joining me. And I certainly do look forward to the next podcast. It's going to be a lot of fun. This is Roman signing off. Thank you. <laughs>